Tucked in between the Impressionist Gallery and the Modern Art Galleries at the Hunter Museum sits this dimly lit, darker-hued room where paintings of the Depression era are displayed. Looking around the room, I notice many paintings where singular subjects drew my focus because of the story that's behind their eyes. I notice that the differences in status and race and dreams and inspirations did not necessarily separate shared struggles. When I was 18, I traveled around the country. I wanted to know what it meant to be a black American. I met my true love in a subway station. First time I laid eyes on her, I knew what it meant when my mother said someone had been kissed by an angel. All through my youth, all I ever wanted to be was a dancer. Frank and Tim look absolutely pitiful sitting there like a couple of toads sunbathing on an overcast Monday. <laughs> but I love them both. <laughs> it was the 30s, and barely any colored wanted to talk about what it meant to be a black American. When you're young and nothing goes your way, you tend to knee-jerk those reactions. I had a chip on my shoulder. I wanted to help. I wanted to make something of myself. I wasn't much of anybody. I worked for the banks. A horrible job at the time. No one liked bank people. Well, no one trusted us. That didn't matter too much, though. I like keeping to myself. I had a schedule. I followed it. Rarely broke free from it. Well, except that one day, November 15th, it was a Monday. I had used my lunch hour to apply for a new job. I was 17 minutes later than usual getting to the station. So I had to wait three more minutes for the next train. When I was five, my ma took me to town with her on errands. We had to stop at a Woolworths. And from the soda fountain, I noticed the playhouse door across the street was standing wide open. My mind must have unhitched. My mother told me what would be the consequences if I didn't stay put, but like a charmed snake, I walked straight over to that door. Frank and Tim were my neighbors, one on either side. I think they still live in the same two houses. I left a long time ago. I was a free spirit anyway, no one could hold me down. At least that's what my mom used to say. According to her, I was just as much a songbird as a naked jaybird when I was a toddler. <laughs> no matter how hard she tried, she couldn't keep the clothes on me. <laughs> that story fascinated Frank and Tim so much <laughs> that my mother was like a skipping record every time they came over for dinner. Naked as a jaybird! <laughs> the first time Frank and Tim came to one of my shows, they sent me a card that said, You'd make your mother proud, Jaybird. <laughs> Love you, Frank and Tim. <laughs> I had made it as far as Maryland, just outside the capital, when I met this Negro man who wouldn't ever tell me his name. I told him I was a reporter and that I was writing the next great new article and I would need his name. He would look off to his right like, he was searching for a name that might make us both proud. But then all he would say was, Just put a Negro man said it. I explained that it would feel more personal with the name, even a fake name. Our country ain't ready to name a one of us yet, young man. I'm Nathan. You're Nathan there. And he pointed to my pen. But not here. And he touched my heart. Love was never an option for me. I'm shy. I don't meet people. Because I try to avoid them. I get nervous. I perspire. My tongue gets all knotted. So when I saw Bessie that first day, my feet turned to lead. It was over an hour before I got back to work because my anxiety wouldn't release me. 
What I first saw was not for the eyes of a five-year-old, that is for sure. But what I saw next changed my life forever. I didn't understand top villain or burlesque at the time, but after getting rightly punished for leaving Woolworths, I had mustered a ton of questions. And since I had been taught that ignorance is no reason for the belt, I felt like that meant I could ask as many questions as I wanted, and I did. I was a wedge between Frank and Tim. <laughs> I messed with them from day one. While the moving truck was unloading our stuff, I saw them playing outside. I decided to introduce myself. I walked right up to their soccer ball and kicked it into the ditch, to which Frank hurried after. While Frank was distracted by the ball, I kissed Sam on the cheek. <laughs> Just a little peck. <laughs> Shock and surprise slapped an ugly grin right across the boy's face. Seconds after Frank brought that ball back, I sent it off in the other direction. <laughs> As planned, Tim chases it down. <laughs> I looked at Frankie and, well, I am not one for disappointing. <laughs> he pulled out my seat, indicated I should sit down. So I did. Then he sat and he took this deep sigh. It was, um, well, now I got to teach this boy something. Kind of sad. Full of history and meaning. He looked off to the right, and we sat there, silently waiting. In retrospect, that silence might have been his first lesson. When he felt I was ready, he told me about Ella. Up at six. Work at 7, lunch at 11, off at 4, home by 5. From 5 to 10, she read the Bible, ate a dinner, washed her uniform, and worked on a quilt. A quilt she had been putting together for the 20 years she had been working as a cleaning lady. She wasn't nobody's maid. And he said she would quit if anyone made that mistake. On Sundays, she had church and a visit to her parents' grave and then her sister's house for dinner. And on Saturdays, that was her make-believe day. Oh, I couldn't get her out of my mind, though. I fell back into my daily regiment, and when I, whenever I was at the station, you know, on my way home from work or as I showed up uh, each morning, I looked for her. Wasn't until a month later, though, when lunch ran long again because of a doctor's appointment, that I saw her. I arrive at the station, lean up against the support column, note that I'm 17 minutes later than normal. But then I pause. I'm 17 minutes later than normal. I immediately look up and look around, and standing right where she had been the time before stood my Bessie. Well, I decided that I needed to approach her today because the next day was a work holiday and then the weekend, and if I didn't go right that minute, I would have to wait till Monday, and mathematically speaking, circumstances would not be in my favor again for quite some time. So I took a deep inhale and started walking right into the barrel chest of the largest man I had ever seen. My eyes met the knot of his necktie and my bottom at the asphalt floor. When the commotion had cleared, so had Bessie. Ma died when I was eight. Pa and me and little Michael raised sheep and chickens and had a vegetable garden. It was a lot of work. I picked up where Ma left off. Pa worked construction when he could, so the house and chores would fall to me during those times. We had a one-roomer on the side of a hill Paul built two lofts when Ma died to give me some privacy and a break from Michael. When I was becoming a woman, it also helped to have a place where I could retreat. And since I now ran the errands into town, I was able to stop by that theater and steal a poster every now and then. Once I splurged a little, watched a show, 
I loved everything about it. The costumes, the lights, most of all the applause. <sighs> For the 10 years I lived in between Frank and Tim, we were inseparable. <laughs> Our families vacationed together, had cookouts with each other, celebrated birthday parties, played mahjong. One year for Halloween, I convinced the two sillies to dress as the Siamese twins, Fang and Aang. I sewed their shirts together. <laughs> I laughed so hard watching them try to walk the neighborhood. <laughs> At one point, Frank says, we should have been cowboys. And Tim followed by saying, or Indians. <laughs> like Chinese finger torture. The more they bickered, the less they could get away from each other, which made them bicker even more. <laughs> I was guffawing. <laughs> I asked what make-believe day was. It was her day to pretend she was someone else or somewhere else. She always did her shopping on Saturday. She might catch a movie, go to a play, walk up and down Main Street in the neighboring town window shopping. She might go to the library or the fair. She had only three dresses. One, she reserved for church. The other two, she alternated wearing each Saturday. She worked hard all week for that one day of freedom. She saved her dreaming and wishing all week so that she could spend it on that one day. She was known for her face, one of service and purpose, tight-lipped and strict focus, except on Saturdays when she grinned ear to ear. I changed my routine and started visiting the station every day at my lunchtime. I even came into town on the weekends, but I never saw her again, at least not for another two months. Then, while I was sitting one afternoon, upset and distressed, she sat down next to me. I taught myself how to sew and I made a couple of dance costumes but I could only wear them while Pa was away on a job. As I watched him pull away in our old pickup truck, I would run upstairs, throw off my work clothes, toss on a costume, run back outside and dance on the hillsides, arms flailing the music in my head and in front of my sheepish audience. Little Michael would always look at me and laugh and then roll in the grass. When I reached true exhaustion, I would clamber back up to my room, change clothes, and fall onto my bed, caught up in my daydreams. Then I would remember about Michael, and back to reality I quickly came. I was a bully to Frank and Tim. I left those two when my parents split. Mom and I moved away. We kept in touch through the post. What was the quilt for? To keep warm, boy, he said, and we both laughed. That quilt was her legacy, he told me. Made from scraps of fabric she found through her job, her make-believe days, her family and her church. She stitched into that quilt grief and joy, love and disappointment. She stitched in that quilt pain and suffering, along with growth and prosperity. She finished that quilt one evening. When her boss stopped by to see why she hadn't shown up to work, she was sitting in her rocking chair. She had passed, <laughs> but she was warm. We talked for hours. <laughs> I told her everything about how much I thought about her and how I came here every day looking to see her again. She said, but I'm black. And that's when I saw it for the first time. 
I had never noticed the color of her skin. Honestly. I still think about dancing. I never got a chance to try it, though. When Pa died and Michael was old enough to take care of his own family, I was able to watch more shows. But I always felt like I was out of place, like I shouldn't be there. Shows were frivolous, and I need to better say what little money I had Michael would always pester me with. You go on with your family, I'd pester back. Leave me alone. I really thought more people would come. Then, he got up and shook my hand. I must be getting along now. And he was gone. I got on the train that evening and went back home. My journey was complete. Two weeks later, a quilt arrived at my door with a note. Keep warm. And it was from a Negro man. Bessie and I left the station together that afternoon. And while we walked down the street to try and find a place to get a slice of pie and a cup of coffee, neither one of us noticed the stairs. Maybe we aren't meant to realize the dreams we have. Maybe it's the dreams that keep us moving, giving us the will to get up every morning. Hmm. I really thought more people would come. Fugue in D was written by Gary Lee Posey, featuring the voices of Christy Gallo, Brenda Schwab, Terrence Wright, and Gary Lee Posey. It was first produced by the Ensemble Theatre of Chattanooga in the 2016 Casting the Canvas series. There is this enormous painting in the Hunter Museum of American Art uh, that depicts the architecture of a large sailing vessel. And surrounding the vessel are 12 impressions of irons, as if they have been left on and left flat for far too long. Uh, The vessel is clearly reminiscent of slave ships coming from Africa. And the irons could clearly represent a form of racial oppression here in America. Uh, Coupling those ideals with society's uh, newfound interest in true crime and scandal. And I had a story starting to emerge. Hey, hey, it's me. I just got into the office. Uh, I see the package is here. It hasn't been tampered with, so all is well. I hope you're okay. Call me as soon as you can. Are you familiar with the fire on Towson Road at the laundromat? Have details. Need to share. 435-9453. I got your note. Hello. Hello? Why don't you ever answer your phone, I swear. Okay, so I know it's my last chance and I'm late, but I just got a lead on a story, and I have a feeling it's going to be good. I'm going to push through, but I, I, I need some time. Can you give it to me, please? I'll buy you a bottle of your favorite wine. Call me back. This is the only way I can communicate with you? I worked at la- the laundromat. The fire was no accident. Cover up goes high. Look into it. I'll be in touch. I will not answer your calls or texts. This has to stay one-sided. Strange. Thank God. Hey, boss. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I know you've pulled more strings than you have at your disposal. Listen. Okay, but listen. Right. Right. I I know. Stop for two seconds and listen to me. It's about the Towson fire. 
You had your suspicions. I went out and asked a few questions. Now I have this source. I can't tell you. I don't know who it is. They claim to have worked at the laundromat. That's exactly what I thought. I just received a message from her claiming that the quote cover-up goes high, end quote. Two days? Okay, fine. I don't know how many days. Thank you, boss. Last one, promise. Bye. Can I speak to the fire chief? There were 12 of us in the building that day. Although, Although brother, brother really, really only acknowledged, acknowledged 11, 11 of us. I'm the only one that walked out alive. I've cried every day since for the other ladies I worked with. The family I come to know. Yes, hi, I'm a reporter with the Gazetteer, and I had a few questions about a recent case. Mm-hmm. I see. Oh, that is excellent. Do you know if he's available right now? Oh, that would be great. Truth be told, we were barely doing enough business to keep the shop open. We had about 50 regular customers, and that was the extent of it. Most of us made just enough to get by, and others made a dollar fifty more. None, None of us liked, liked him very, very much. much. But brother always paid us. Every Friday. Yes, I have some questions about the Towson Road fire. I was told you could help me. Is the investigation still ongoing? Right. Ah, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Is that not strange? Okay. Thanks. Is there a contact number on the report, maybe for the owner? Yes, please. These are the names of the missing persons in the bordering counties. Look into them. Lania Jones, Betty Lassiter, Mimi Johnson, Elmira Lupton, Queenie Canfield, Tamira Connolly, Tanisha Bird, Tasha Stratton, Mona Gilliam, Irene Clinton. Okay, so I'm just getting into all of it, but this looks really big. My guy has anonymously uh, been contacted by a person who worked inside the laundromat on Towson that went up in flames. You remember? So um, evidently the guy who ran the facility was in some kind of dealings with individuals in the mayor's office. No, 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 the county mayor. That's what I thought too. That everyone had died. Evidently, she was asked to run an errand the day of the fire and told by her boss, a guy named Brother, that if something happened, she would need to keep her mouth shut about what she knew. Well, that's what I'm trying to find out. I need to finish reading the transcripts left to me, and then there is this uh, mini recorder tape with God knows what on it. Right, right. Uh, I, I, I saw the time, and I just wanted to make sure I called you and let you know. The man these ladies called brother did not, in fact, own the property or the business. He, he was, was the, the front, front man for the multi-generational multi operation of what can best be described of modern, modern indentured servitude. servitude. The remains of the ten women discovered in the ruins of the Towson Road laundromat have never been able to be fully identified. The specifics relate that each woman was between 35 and 70 years old, suffers from suffered from what appears to be malnourishment and bad hygiene. Brother let us bathe once a week. We worked 10 hours a day. What little money we had afforded us beans and rice from the market just down the street. Since I was the youngest, I was allowed to do the shopping. We slept in the back of the laundromat on straw mattresses, each with a thin and worn-out blanket. Our pillows each night were the dirty clothes that had been dropped off earlier in the day. You never answer your phone. Uh, okay, so all 10 names she passed me in the text messages all correspond with missing persons all pronounced dead in the neighboring counties. 
in trying to coordinate the details of the missing persons report with those remains from the case report of the night, there were, was a miraculous discovery. Ready for this? The case report has now gone missing. No one can find it. No one knows anything about it. And the kicker is that no one at any of the county police departments where these missing girls are from will respond to my calls, my emails, my faxes, or anything. Call me back. What is clear about this damaging fire is that it did cover something up. What isn't clear is what the cover-up might be. Speculation on the nature of the ladies who worked inside the laundromat have circulated the Towson Road community for years. Neighbors commented regularly on how bad the facility smelled, how improperly vented the building was, and the general poor welfare of the employees. There were several that mentioned going to different authorities on the matters. However, none of the agencies contacted provided any reports or any knowledge of reports having been made. The Towson Road laundromat is clearly shrouded in mystery. I told you we couldn't meet out here. I know, but... This is dangerous. Weren't they your friends? The men you called brother had a heart attack two nights ago, so what are you worried about? Brother was nobody to these people. He was just as tortured as we were. Brother was trapped, too. <laughs> this goes way back and way up. If they see us out here talking like this, they But the article, everything you've texted me, all your messages, there will be... There will, will be in the article, and it will be published. But until then, we are only half the story. Story that needs to be told. I don't know you. I don't know your privilege. I don't know your past. I don't know your sufferings, and I don't know your trials. You know those of mine that I've shared. It wasn't a mistake that I was sent for errands that day. I know it wasn't. I was the youngest. I was the strongest. I was the smartest. The other 10, they were my friends. They were the ones that knew that salvation couldn't come for them. Their escape was... Did you hear that? I need to leave now. Junie, wait. Wait. Who's there? That's it? Uh, hello? Oh, 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 wait, 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 just slow down, slow, slow down. Twelve Irons in the Fire was written by Gary Lee Posey, featuring the voices of Taylor Williams, Kashawn Parks, and Gary Lee Posey. It was first produced by the Ensemble Theatre of Chattanooga and the 2018 Casting the Canvas series. Hey everybody, it's Gary, the producer for Lights Up, Ensemble Theatre of Chattanooga's new podcast for playwrights, performers, and patrons of theater. I wanted to see if you've heard about Anchor. Anchor, the platform that's hosting our podcast. If you haven't heard about Anchor yet, well, I am happy to be the first to tell you about it. It is free. F-R-E-E. -E. That's right, free. Um, there are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your computer uh, or your phone. And Anchor will distribute the podcast that you create so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. And you know what else? It doesn't cost you anything, but you can make money from your podcast, and you don't even have to have a minimum listenership. That's right. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So. Do like we did. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R, or anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R.fm to get started and create your podcast.
The inspiration for this play came from a modern art installation. Uh, the installation included several costume sketches that were imprinted on a tempered glass that was then formed to represent sheets of paper. And these sheets were then arranged as if they had been flung from the artist's hand. Uh, the fragility of the glass in contrast to how we use our physical appearance to sometimes hide and mask our true selves provided the perfect palette for me to explore processing my own trauma. I stand before you, liberated, vulnerable, naked, open, scared, a canvas. I'm chunky. Mm. I tread lightly. Hmm. I'm high maintenance and costly. Yes. I'm a runner. Mm -mm. I'm comfortable. I have a soft soul. Yes. Pants. I fit snugly hiding nothing. Mm. I fit baggy hiding everything. Hmm. I have seven pockets. Hmm. I have no pockets. I flare at the bottom and fray at the seams. Pops. Mm -hmm. Big sleeves. Uh, Low cut. Asymmetrically balanced. Mm. High collar. Mm. Coat. Short and light. Long and heavy. Mm. Water repellent. We weren't chosen. Not today, no. We were overlooked. Once again, yes. Someone has to be. Are we not good enough? We are here, are we not? Well, that didn't answer the question. She has options. Oh, we weren't special enough. Not today, no. Yeah, we aren't special enough. Not today. So what happened? It was a split. Oh? In half? Pretty much. Still developing. Uh, must have hurt. Seams aren't as strong as they used to be. All things heal. Can I be honest? Of course. I'm pissed. I'm past. Over. Get it? Ugh. It's a play on the words and the actions. Which do you think spoke louder? Don't take too many liberties. What's that supposed to mean? Evaluate. Done. <laughs> what? I am. I'm comfortable. I'm soft. I smell nice. I'm modern. Sexy. Chic. Made in America. Huh. <laughs> I hate it when you stare at me all elliptically like that. Just say whatever it is you want to say, out loud. <laughs> You're so irritating. You say evaluate. I do. And then you go... <clears throat> Relax. I'm coming unstitched. <laughs> Did you laugh? Did I make you laugh? <sighs> you are smiling. Well, bless my French seams. Stop. Why? Why do you do that? We were in such a great place. And then boom, you share it. And then the ellipses. What's on your mind? I want to tell you I'm sorry. I want to give you a kiss. I want to turn it around to be yesterday. I want to open my eyes from the dream that is turning into a nightmare. I want to try again. I want to hold your hand. I want to touch your face. I want to smell your scents. Oh. Is this telepathy? Because I'm not picking up anything. You never did. That is not true. Yes, it is. No. Yes. 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 
I don't know what to say. What's your biggest struggle? Uh, I wrinkle easy. What did you say? I wrinkle easy. I can be a little too tight. I make everyone sweat. I know. I'm opening up. Mm. Please stop doing that. It's just... I know, I know. Can we move on? We're going to be overlooked again tomorrow, you know. And the next day, probably. I mean, for me, anyway. But you, you, you're easy on the eyes. You're flattering. You compliment almost everything. You're versatile. I'm a product of a love that no longer exists. I was just a gift. My value defined by a moment that no longer will be shared. What's love but a second-hand emotion? <sighs> this was intentional for my segue. Speaking of second-hand, I was good-willed, loved, tossed, Found, loved, tossed, found, loved, tossed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you get the idea. So I was part of the stuff what you can in a bag for $5 sale. No, you weren't. But I made you smile. You are always so good at that. <laughs> Don't blush. It's not your color. Mm, I see what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm in the wrong place. Oh. Why's that? Uh, wait, have you been here the whole time? I know you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, didn't see that coming. Can't compete with a tank top. Jumped right off the hanger into the hamper. Like a Michael Jordan free throw. Nothing but net. Oh, to be one of the wrinkle-free generation. Uh, so high maintenance. I'll be picked one day again. The wear is my character. The vintage is my charm. Goodwilled was written by Gary Lee Posey, featuring the voices of Jesse McCecil, Maggie Williams, Eric Red Wyatt, Taylor Williams, and Kashawn Parks. It was first produced by the Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga in the 2019 Casting the Canvas series. In this last piece, taking in the peacefulness, I address a theme that seems to find its way into much of my writing. Uh, this theme infuriates me, it comforts me, it enriches me, it devalues me, it inspires me, and it depresses me. I'm afraid of it, but seek to genuinely understand it. It's an event we all experience, sometimes, many times. I was sitting in the diner on the corner of Market and 7th. I had just turned 19. I remember it like it was yesterday. I would always go there for lunch, BLT on rye and Coca-Cola. I was usually with a girlfriend from work, but that day I sat by myself at the counter. As soon as the black and white television over the grill made the announcement, you could have heard a pin drop. Time stood still. We all just stared at the screen, breathless. That's something else. Here it's been over 45 years since Kennedy's assassination, and you can remember those details? I even remember what I was wearing. 
I had my new blue mini skirt, which was about an inch above my knee, and this light yellow blouse with short sleeves. That's amazing. I mean, I can't even remember what day of the week 9-11 occurred. What's a 9-11? Another day that lives in infamy. More Japanese kamikazes? No, these were Middle Eastern. Horrible tragedy. Shares a lot of similarities with Pearl Harbor. Several innocent lives lost, propelled the U.S. into a war. War. Don't even get me started. We've been down that road before, you and I. So, is your daughter coming today? I think so. She usually visits every other Sunday. Used to be every Sunday, but you know kids. When they get older, their priorities shift. Do you have any kids? Just the one. I don't think I've ever seen her. She's only 13 months old. Oh. I'm sorry. I didn't realize that I feel horrible. No, it's, it's fine. Here I am talking like I'm still alive, going on and on about my daughter and family, and all the while completely being inconsiderate of your feelings. Really, it's okay. I mean, we've never talked about it, so now's as good a time as any. I died while giving birth to my child. I, I don't even know how to respond to that. I can't even imagine. Makes breast cancer seem like a walk in the park. You had breast cancer? Yeah. We discovered it early enough, but there was very little treatment at the time. There was this barbaric procedure called the Halstead Radical Mastectomy that had like a 10% success rate. My luck must have run out. Pris was eight. What about your husband? You mean Pris's father? Oh, I don't guess he ever knew. He enlisted. I died before he came back. Chris once told me that she received a letter from a lawyer saying that as his only child, she would be responsible for his estate. She never responded, said she had too many emotions over what to do and would just feel better pretending like she was immaculately conceived. My father was my rock. I wasn't the best child, but he always told me why the things I did were wrong and made sure I understood it. Morgan's named after him. When we went in for our first ultrasound, I dozed off while Mark and the doctor were talking about vitamins or supplements or something, and in my daydream, I saw my father approach me with the biggest smile on his face I had ever seen and just touch my stomach. Do you mind if I ask what kind of childbirth complications you had? No, I've shed my tears more than plenty enough times over it. Basically, I should have never been pregnant to begin with, but... For as long as I can remember, I've always wanted a child. I was told that medically it would be difficult. Mark said, we'll adopt. I felt like such a failure that I couldn't provide the one thing that makes mothers unique in a relationship. Needless to say, we got married and did things that newlyweds do. Before I knew it, I was pregnant. Miraculously, I suppose. Immaculately conceived, sorta. The baby progressed fine, but I couldn't keep up. I was able to make it through seven months. Little Morgan stayed in the hospital for three months. Mark would come out here and keep me updated on her progress. Did you ever come to a cemetery to talk with anyone? No. Neither did I. I always imagined it would be like replaying traumatic events over and over, and I guess I just got scared of it. My parents told this story once. I was six or so, and my Grammy died. I went to the visitation, but stayed in the outer room. I stood in the doorway and just stared in the direction of the casket. I don't know if it's because I thought maybe if I don't see her, then it isn't true, or if I was scared or what. But for the whole visitation, I just stood there. Chris did the same thing at my funeral. I never had a problem with dead people. I lived my life so fast that when I would go to a funeral or a visitation, regardless of how well or how close I knew the person, I would stand there at the casket and try to soak in that peacefulness. My hustle-bustle life stopped, and in those moments, I was able to, to really hone in on some sort of energy. Sounds weird, huh? <laughs> I was a teenager in the late 60s. I can dig what you say. <laughs> Is that Pris down there parking? It certainly is. Do you mind if I hang around while she visits? I don't. 
Hi, Mom. So I have some good news. I met a guy. What? His name is Mark. He's really sweet. We were at the speed dating night held at the country club. <laughs> one of those. He's not one of those, Mom. I know what you're thinking. Well... I don't know. Maybe I'm being a bit weird and gushy, but he's different. He's special. Tell me how. Like the other day, we met for ice cream down at Main Street Deli. Oh, Mary, I love that place. And he brought his daughter. She's a baby. He brought his daughter to a date? That's so strange, I thought. But then I realized he has priorities. Mom, I really think you'd like him. I know that I'm over 30, but sometimes I just really wish I could come in the door and say, guess what, Mom? I'm sorry, sweetheart. You know, it's been 22 years now. I know. I went for a checkup the other day. Everything checked out, still fine. That's good. I got another letter from the lawyer again. They say they are gonna send the accounts over for collection. That father of yours. Let's see what else. Your niece just graduated from high school. She was the valedictorian. She mentioned in her address how she wanted to become a doctor because of the memory of an aunt she never knew. Mary, that's sweet. Chris moved in with my sister after I died. For several years, my niece Becca would come up here to visit. Joanne says to tell you hi. Said that she's sorry she couldn't make it. Her knees aren't what they used to be. I brought your favorites today, fresh daisies. You remember that summer before you died, we were at the park and I rolled over into a patch of daisies and you said to me, now Pris, you are way too young to be pushing up daisies. And so are you, mom, so are you. Mark's here, I wonder why. Some parents you got, huh? From one of us, you got the genetic for cancer and from the other, you get massive debt. We both left you. Pris, you okay? Mark, what are you doing here? You know her? My mom. Is that the Mark? I don't know. This could be awkward. This is so ironic. Um, my wife. It is the Mark. So this might be a bit awkward. Uh, sorry if I interrupted anything. No, just morning. Uh, I thought it'd be easier after 22 years. I imagine it never gets any easier. You brought the baby. This is the first time that I've brought Morgan up here. Beth, she's adorable. She's sleeping, but I wanted to bring her up here because when I'm here, I feel Elizabeth's spirit around me, and I thought maybe Morgan would be able to feel it as well. She looks just like you. Mark, I approve. I was telling my mother about you. I got to thinking about, you know, after we had ice cream, you know, maybe I'm rushing it. It's just been over a year and I'm just getting the dad thing down and I don't know if introducing- Mark, you didn't come here to say these things to me. No, you're right. It's coincidental that we met here. Baby, it's okay. I'm not going to be mad. I'm gonna go for a walk. I just like to walk around the cemetery and look at tombstones when I come to visit mom. I actually have this feeling that she walks around with me, telling me all these stories about the interesting people she meets. So, if you remember last time, I was telling you about Nathaniel, died in 1872 over in the West Lot. Well, evidently his great-grandson just discovered that his bloodline were... So, how's Morgan? Morgan, this is where mommy sleeps. Do you feel her? She's here. <sighs> Sorry that she's sleeping, Elizabeth. It, it's been tough this last week. I, I couldn't come Friday because we spent the whole day in the doctor's office. She had a temperature on Thursday night and couldn't keep anything down. I freaked out and mom came over and we went to see Dr. Jones. I, I felt like there was nothing I could do and I just kept thinking, not her too. It, it was a fever, Elizabeth. 
A simple fever, and all I could think about was losing her. Baby, it's okay. You're doing fine, and she's beautiful. She's beautiful, isn't she? Looks more and more like you every day. No, she doesn't. She has your hair and your chin. We brought you some flowers. Oh, and another small gift. It's a painting. Morgan got into your paints the other day. I made this huge mess. At first I got really upset, but then she turned to me and smiled and then picked up this piece of paper and handed it to me. Our daughter is going to be an artist. <laughs> She's not Van Gogh yet, but there's potential. So, I don't know if you're even listening. I'm here. But the girl Pris that was just here, I really like her. It'll be okay. It's sort of ironic that she's here, isn't it? I think it's fate. Mark, I'm going. Pris, will you wait for me at your car? Taking in the Peacefulness was written by Gary Lee Posey, featuring the voices of Christy Gallo, Megan Smith, Maggie Williams, and John Thomas McCecil. It was written in 2008 and first produced by the Ensemble Theatre of Chattanooga in the 2011 Short Attention Span Theatre Short Play Festival.